and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's podcast, we take a deep dive look at feminism is the moral vision that undergirded the movement years ago, the same as today's modern feminism. Well, in this episode, we'll get into the development of feminist thought over the years and how a proper view of women's rights includes the concrete responsibility to others. And joining us to talk about this is Erica Bakiaki. Erica Bakiaki is a fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center and is a legal, legal scholar specializing in equal protection, jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, and sexual ethics. A 2018 visiting scholar at Harvard Law School, she is a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute, and her newest book, The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, was published in 2021. It's actually been named a finalist for the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's 2022 Conservative Book of the Year Award. So first of all, Erica, a big congratulations on how well your book has done. And thank you so much for joining us on She Thinks. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, we are talking about a very broad, a very big issue, this issue of feminism. I thought, and I know you you go over this in the book, I thought we'd talk about the origins of feminism in order to even compare it to modern feminism. So where does one begin and what would you say are some of the virtues that we saw with feminism when it first started? Yeah, so feminism itself, even the term is sort of a fraught term because it sort of postdates the origins of what I would call, you know, the early women's rights movement. So I think feminism was coined in probably the early 20th century. Um, but I trace um, sort of the thought of, of, you know, women's rights back to Mary Wollstonecraft, who's a late 18th century thinker, a British philosopher. And I trace her thought and sort of her vision, which is what the lost vision of my book is trying to reclaim through the first wave of the women's movement. Um, you know, the uh, we know them as the suffragists of, um, you know, the mid to late 19th century, but they were up to all sorts of other things as well, which we can talk about. Um, and then I sort of uh, show how there was a real sort of split, um, a real philosophical split between what I um, then trace as the Wollstonecraftian strain up through, um, you know, modern times, and then really a Millian or Lockean strain, um, which is sort of a, a more libertarian strain, I guess you would call it rather than the communitarian strain I see in Wollstonecraft's thought. And I trace that also up um, uh, through modern times. And so let's start with that first wave, as you call it. So what were some of the fundamental things that women were trying to achieve when it came to rights in that time frame? Yeah, so they're really leaning. If you look at um, Seneca Falls and even before, they're really trying to, um, with the Industrial Revolution, I mean, it's fascinating that this first wave of feminism comes to be right around the time of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of, of liberalism and sort of, you know, the promotion of kind of the individual, the individual male, especially, but the individual. And so they're sort of both responding and then, um, and then sort of making use of that movement um, to argue for their own rights. And so they're, the first, very first thing they do is they argue for joint property ownership. Um, you know, in during agrarian times, uh, women and men were very much uh, collaborative, um, uh, interdependent kind of workers in the agrarian homestead. But as men move out to become wage earners with the Industrial Revolution and also poor women, of course, as well, um, there begins to be a real dependency of women in the home that they hadn't experienced before because because the homestead was so interdependent. And so they're really the very first thing that they 
argue for is a joint property ownership, which of course we have now today in marriage, but they didn't have before because of the doctrine of coverture, which is basically when a woman gets married to a man, um, she is under the cover of the man. And so all of her property, anything she brings into the marriage, anything she earns, which wasn't much at that time when women were working outside the home very much, is then in the man's name. And it really had significant um, you know, consequences for inheritance rights, um, for custody of children, uh, for all sorts of, you know, property division, etc. So they really argued that because they were involved in, you know, the work of the home and, and the productive work of the home, as much as their husbands were, even though their husbands were starting to be wage earners, they should jointly own the home. So that was really the first move that they that they made. And then there's, you know, clamoring for rights, well, to, you know, to contract, to property, to education, um, and then, of course, to suffrage. And they really leaned on what we now would call natural law arguments. They they quote, you know, in the Seneca Falls, uh, the document, the Declaration of um, Sentiments and Resolutions in 1848, that very first Women's Rights Convention. They're leaning on this argument that, look, you know, women and men are both creatures, rational creatures of um, God, and they're both responsible to God for you know, themselves. Um, and and so that they should really have the rights to be, take responsibility really in society as well. And so there were different arguments for why women should have the vote. Um, you know, you hear kind of natural rights arguments in their thought, but you also hear arguments really that, you know, um, because of the kind of responsibility women wielded in the home in terms of moral responsibility, they should bring that responsibility out into the public sphere as well. Frances Willard, one of the most powerful women of that time, leader of the Christian temperance movement, she argued and really persuaded a lot of her followers that the ballot, the franchise was really the home protection ballot, you know, to protect the goods of the home. And so those were some of, I think, the, the main really virtues you see in that time. So do you then see the second wave co- coincide when women enter the workplace, that that is where they're trying to get their second wave of rights because they're moving from the homestead, as you call it, to out in the working world, into the industrial world? Yeah. And so so you start to see anti-discrimination, of course, claims um, rise, you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. But before that, there's really this fascinating internal debate between, you know, I don't call them this in the book, but I think it's a good shorthand between kind of the communitarians and more liberal thinkers, um, more libertarians. And so the reason I think of them that way is because you know, they both had a lot of merit in their thought. But the question is how women should be treated in the industrial workplace. Should they be treated just like men, kind of the more liberal kind of conception? Or should they be understood as members of families with special responsibilities to their children? And so they really tangled over this. And what's fascinating, you know, as a law student, you go and you read all these cases, Lochner is this really famous case, all sorts of other cases in the industrial era. And you hear of the male judges making the decisions and the male advocates before the bench and all that, arguing for you know their particular side. You never hear about the women behind the men who are really pushing. So you have this, these incredible women, Florence Kelly, um, Jane Addams, on the one side, the more communitarian side, looking at how the industrial workplace had really been very, very difficult, especially for poor women who had these, you know, simultaneous responsibilities in the home and were trying to juggle all of this. And then you have more like the Alice Paul and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who really wanted to argue that there should be no special kind of protections for women in the workplace because they needed to compete equally with with men in the workplace for the same exact reason, because of their responsibilities in the home. So they kind of tangle over these things in a really fascinating way. And that's what gets us really a lot of 
the workplace advances and protections that both then cover both men and women, you know, with the New Deal. But it's this this fascinating debate that happens when once FDR's New Deal comes about and there's kind of a floor for all of the workplace where there's more safety precautions, you know, more regulations, then you start to see the the move that everyone sort of comes together with um, anti-discrimination law in the 1960s and 70s. You still have some labor advocates who are pushing for protections, of course, for mothers. But I think a lot of that is due to, you know, women were pushed into the workplace. Many, many women who had been at home during World War II, when many, you know, men were, were out, you know, fighting the war. And so people began to see that women could do the work that men were doing um, just as well. Um, and also the physical, the sort of need of physical strength that had been so important in both industrialization and then even in the manufacturing sector, that was starting to wane, the knowledge service industry was starting to grow. And so you could, you started to see that there weren't really so many reasons why you should keep women out of certain field certain professions. And so that's where industrial, excuse me, where you start to see anti-discrimination become a thing that pretty much everyone agrees with that there are certain, you shouldn't, you know, distinguish between the sexes when it comes to education or professions and all that, when really reproductive differences aren't an issue at all. And so let's move into the next wave. And I would say that I saw this when I first started my career over two decades ago, but it, it, there was a precursor to this where I felt that there was this turn where instead of it just let's have equal rights in education and in the workplace, it turned into if you want to be a successful woman, you have to shun the family and focus solely on a career. So it was getting rid of those things that make us unique, being uh, mothers, uh, caring about the home, different things like that. But that was something that had to be shunned. Is that where you saw the feminist movement potentially take a turn for the worse? Yeah, you know, I think that there's becomes a focus. I mean, one of the fascinating things that I would say every listener should go, especially your, you know, the people who follow your work, is just go, go look up the original statement in 1966 of the National Organization for Women. It's this really fascinating statement that goes over actually some of the history that I mentioned, you know, the change, the technological changes um, that have really uh, enhanced kind of you know, women's capacity to just do the same kind of work as men, um, physical strength wasn't as needed, women's longevity made it so that they weren't, you know, going to be having children their whole life, all that. And really, what they're pointing to is they, they want, they say, to create institutions in society that are kind of hospitable to women who have children, which is fascinating, because it's very similar to the first wave kind of ideas that, we're women, and we bring something different to the table. We ought not to be discriminated against because of that. But we also, that ought to be acknowledged in some way because it's so fundamental to what we care about. And that's very much in that first statement of the National Organization for Women. They talk about, you know, the social and economic value of caregiving and homemaking. I mean, it's stuff that you would never hear out of most feminists today, right? And then there's this real shift. And I think part of it, I mean, I blame part of it on the philosophical course and the move away from what I see as this Wollstonecraftian strain, which understood men and women as sharing this common purpose, that freedom for Wollstonecraft was just a means to an end. And what was the end while well, developing in moral and intellectual excellence, you know? And so having children was part of that, becoming, a, you know, a moral, um, a mature person was giving yourself over to others and caring for others, those responsibilities that were part and personal of being a good American as well, right? Civic responsibilities, all of that. And I think there's this shift 
where you know I see John Stuart Mill and his subjection of women and the, and the arguments he makes in on liberty becoming much more important, where freedom then becomes its own end. And it's all about self-creation, self-ownership, which is more Lockean term, but kind of self, you know, the self-promotion. And, and I think that kind of move of anti-discrimination law, almost like meeting its end, instead of it just being a means to help women, you know, enter the workplace on a on more fair and just basis, it becomes like we have to be entirely equal in all ways to men, almost indistinguishable. And so therefore, if men are unencumbered from children, then women have to be unencumbered from children too. And so I call it a market logic, but instead of the market being a good means to, you know, distribute and and produce and all sorts of good things that the market does, it almost as though the market mentality of Equality is kind of a market equality. We must be breadwinners just like men. And so it does. There's sort of a move away from the family. So it's both anti-discrimination law and then a lot of reproductive politics that takes over um, really instead of this older view of rights are necessary in order to um, engage and fulfill our responsibilities to other wherever they are, whether we have children, whether they're, you know, broader family, uh, civic responsibilities and all that. And it becomes a more short-sighted kind of careerist focus that tends to be more focused on sort of the success, worldly success, you know, success in wealth and status and all these things, which are fine and good, except that they ought to be used for the good of others and for, you know, the common wheel for, for the public interest and all that. And I think that that's been lost. I saw a really interesting article, I think it was earlier this week, and I can't even remember what the publication was, but there was a study done in the UK about what the wage losses are for women when they have kids. So how much they could have earned on average, but if they have kids, they couldn't. And so it's making this this uh, statement that women lose money because they have children. So it's going back to that children are a burden. The right. career is what we're looking for. However, I do think that that is is kind of going against some of what we're seeing where you see celebrities are being praised for having babies. I remember Beyonce had her twins or Kim Kardashian has four kids. I feel that even in the public sphere, even in pop culture, motherhood is being embraced more than what we've seen before. So have you seen a, a correction on that? Yeah, no, you're right. There is this language of opportunity cost. I mean, I, mean, I use economic language too. It's very helpful, right? But it's still like this kind of opportunity cost of having children. And it's true. I mean, the anti-discrimination gains of the last half century have been an incredible boon to women who can live their lives just like unencumbered men who can make those kinds of decisions. You know, there's there's the wage gap is very small. I mean, Claudia Golden, one of the most celebrated economists, a feminist herself, sees that the wage gap between men and women who have made the same decisions are very small. But when women make decisions for their family, which they often want to do, the wage gap definitely, you know, uh, uh, you know, changes and, and, and there's a gulf there because of the decisions women are making for, for motherhood. But I think you're right. Women are still making those decisions. I mean, I personally think there ought to be many more accommodations for <clears throat> family life for both men and women. I think, you know, since women got into the workplace, it's not, you know, the family itself is working so many more hours. I mean, think of it before when it was men as breadwinners, women as caregivers, they were working only the men's hours. Now the family is working twice as much, at least at the upper echelons and the lower echelons are having a hard time maybe finding work to all the work that they need. But so I think, you know, women are still choosing for their families. It just would be good if society had, you know, sort of institutional understanding that that choice, that choice for the family is a good one. So, there should be things like allowances for part-time work. I mean, I argue for part-time pay equity, that you shouldn't have kind of a mommy tax on your work, 
when you're, you know, you shouldn't be paid disproportionately less when you're working part time, you know, and there's all sorts of things that the left and right are starting to kind of come around, like, you know, parental leave that, of course, we don't have and every other country has things that make it a lot easier for women to engage in work while also prioritizing their family. You also see men who want to do this, not even, I mean, of course, there's an increase in stay at home dads, but there's also just men who want to spend more time with their children engaged in the life of the family because they see really so many riches there. For many, many people, their work is not what brings them happiness. Their work is a means to fulfill those duties that they have to the home so and to their, to their family, to their children. And so it's, you know, we ought to be restructuring things with, with really the family first, I think. Well, I want to take a brief moment to let you know, our listeners, uh, something interesting and to ask you a question. Are you a conservative woman? Do you feel problematic just for existing in today's political landscape? Well, I have some info to share with you. Every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to you, a problematic woman. That is a woman whose opinions are often excluded or even mocked by those on the so-called pro-women left. Lauren and Virginia break down the news you care about in an upbeat and sharp-witted way. So search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Erica, I want to now turn to what we often think of the definition of what feminism is. And I think we think of the Women's March, which started right <laughs> after the inauguration of Donald Trump. We That's where we saw just thousands of women out there. I actually was reporting on the ground and can attest to how many women were out there. But the things that they were espousing from the stage were very different than some Mm -hmm. of the founding principles you listed today as the definition of feminism. I think that's why women who are conservative like me, we struggle to even call ourselves feminists because the term means something so different today. So what would you make of the Women's March claiming that that is feminism. Is it true feminism? And why do we see such a difference? Yeah, you know, that's actually the vignette I begin the whole book with, as you know. And it's just really the difference. I put, you know, the Women's March and kind of, you know, the, the not only the pink hats on the heads, of course, but also if you were privy to, which I did because I work on these issues, um, the stage at the end there where, where they were speaking, I mean, just engaging in expletives, you know, ad hominem attacks, um, just really kind of down and ugly. I mean, the kind of things that you would expect from kind of malformed like adolescent boys, you know, <laughs> that are talking like I remember in the, actually in the locker room together, you know, seeing the signs that women were holding like this is not appropriate for children. I remember right. thinking that as I was there which I think is really indicative of what kind of, you know, the second wave as it moved off. I mean, there's parts of the second wave, again, the anti-discrimination law that I think is good. But but when it sort of moved off, um, you know, the way I think about it is that you can sort of work for for equal rights in a couple of different ways. One is that you can kind of call men up to a higher sort of level, not to say that, you know, there aren't always gentlemen and all of that, but there's a way in which sometimes men, I mean, I have several sons and several daughters, so I see it, but there's, there's a way in which women can, you know, call men to be their best selves. I think men can call women to be their best selves, but you can sort of bring about equality by asking them, you know, to join me in this, in reciprocity and collaboration, all these kinds of higher sorts of things, which is what the first wave women feminists were were doing, you know, they were they were really asking men to join them in the work of the home, in the work of care, in the work of nurture, but also in good provision, right, for for their families and taking responsibilities. I mean, a lot of what they were doing 
was calling them away from bars and brothels. You know, that was that's why the temperance movement was such a big deal for those first wave. Right. They were saying you have responsibilities in the family to us, you know, to your wife, to your children. Come be here. And they, they felt they needed equal rights in order to protect themselves from, you know, when men went astray. But what the second wave does, especially as it gets on and on into whichever waves it's in, and you see this very much in that feminist movement, or that, um, sorry, women's march is really, I think, degrading women into these real, like, kind of the lowest of low men, which is just such a pity. And they, you know, one of the things I point out is they use similar terms like dignity and love and self-determination, but they really mean entirely different things. You know, in the first wave, they always understand that there are, there are particular ends and what are the ends? But again, the responsibilities to others, developing oneself in, I mean, they use the words virtue, we would probably say moral and intellectual excellence, you know, that, that that's the end of life and to get to happiness versus self-determination kind of to do whatever I want, to live whatever life I want. And you just kind of have to deal with it, even if it's hurtful, harmful to others and all that. So I think there really is a, there's a turn, there's an individualistic turn that has gone all the way down. So it's really me focused, but focused on kind of the lowest, you know, the lowest parts of us, kind of the, the app, the lowest animalistic appetites, which is in it, to my view, the, those first wave feminists called us to the highest part of us, the highest principle of us, which is our rational capacities, right? And um, and so, yeah, I think it's I think those are kind of the differences that I would see. Well, as we wrap up our time today, I want to get to another area, which I think is just fascinating as we talk about this issue. And that is what we see with the transgender movement, where men say that they are women. And this push to make sure that we are using the right terminology when we talk about things like women. So you recently signed on endorsed Independent Women's Bill of Rights, which seeks to legally define common sex-based words such as female, women, and sex. So how important do you feel it is to define these terms? Why is that so necessary? Yeah, I have to tell you, congratulations on that statement. I sort of have been waiting. I have all sorts of friends in the UK who have been really pushing it back against this for a while. And I was like, where are the Americans? Why aren't we doing anything? <laughs> so I was not only so thrilled to see the statement and then asked to be asked to sign on. I mean, I was just just honored. And and it, and it was just a perfect statement. I mean, I, you have great people working for you. It was just excellent. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a real as you know, those of us, you know, conservatives know, like, there's a real totalitarianism in all of this, right? I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it makes you think of the dystopias where, you know, people were told in certain books that we would be told not to say mother. I mean, this is, this is an incredible affront to who women are. And the fact that more feminists, I mean, in, you know, at least in other countries in the UK, there's more push, I think, back of feminists. And in our country, it's funny, it's like, I've actually had conversations with, you know, feminists who don't agree with me on much. But they, you know, and I've asked them, like, you're a feminist, like, why are you not, you know, commenting on this trans stuff? Like, how are you really using their terms, like really saying that, you know, male body, you know, male body people who identify as women are actually women? Why are you allowing this? It's just astonishing to me. Yeah. So I don't think there's a more important thing to be doing actually right now. My book doesn't really get into this. Although if you read my book, you have a sense of where I stand clearly. Um, I have a little footnote when when the Bostock decision came out, but it was just, you know, predated kind of some of the total insanity that is that has taken place. But I think it's absolutely important. And a lot of this is really what we talked about before is that we've lost the capacity to understand first what a human is, you know, so there's an idea that like, we're just this self creating that there's nothing given about us. And Wollstonecraft, those early women's rights activists, they knew 
you know, that what are human beings are, we're rational creatures, we're rational animals. And we have as men and women, the shared purpose where happiness, you know, comes when we develop, you know, we develop ourselves in, you know, what they would say is wisdom and virtue and, and excellence. And, and we share this, we share this together, but we're also dimorphic beings, right? We're distinguished because of our reproductive capacities. It doesn't mean our reproductive Capacities are everything about us, and that's right. what anti-discrimination law gets at, right? But they are very important. They distinguish us, and that's what makes a female, is one who has the potential to do this amazing thing, which is carry and bear children. And so when you decided you don't like that in your whole movement, you know, however many decades ago, it sort of makes sense that if you've, like, eclipsed the idea of, you know, females being those who bear children from your movement entirely, you've said that's less important than their wage earning or whatever, of course, you're going to come to the point where you can kind of make up whatever a woman is. It can be just whatever she says. And the last thing I would just say is how sort of gross it is to be called things like, you know, I don't know, like bleeder and oh, all of God. these like tearing apart the female body, instrumentalizing it, you know, and, and to think that like more feminists in our country aren't standing up. I just applaud and I applaud all those you at, you know, Independent Women's Forum have come together with women's um, uh whatever it's called, Liberation Federation, or whatever it's called, the wolf and all that, like come together with more because this is like the battle of our time right now. And I, I don't think it's going to be long lived because I just think it's so absurd. But obviously, I'm not in the in the trenches on this one. Yeah, we're very excited about the Women's Bill of Rights. And we're excited about giving information about your book and you sharing it with us today. So it's called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Erica Bakiaki, thank you so much for joining us on She Thinks Today. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you all for listening to us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends know where they can find more She Thinks. Thanks. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for watching.